Direct from Montreal, Canada, this is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Joining me on the phone, it is longtime co-host Alan Niven, but this time, no, not to co-host, to actually be the guest. He owns the rights to an album called Stage by Great White, and it was recently re-released and remastered. So uh, we get into that, and uh, also uh, guitarist Mark Kendall recently gave an interview where he said some things about the album Hooked, and Alan, of course, who had a chance to be part of that team that worked on that album, figured out, or figured, you know what, I've got some things to say about Hooked, and he doesn't necessarily agree with what uh, Mark Kendall had to say, so uh, let us get right into this. Here is a former Guns N' Roses and Great White manager and Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon co-host, the one, the only, the indefatigable Alan Niven. We are speaking with a former Great White and Guns N' Roses manager, Alan Niven, and yes, that is correct, he is not the co-host this time, he is... The guest. Uh, bonjour, Alain. Comment allez-vous in les États-Unis? Uh, très bien. Um, obviously, there are things that are going on in the world right now um, that let's not spend time on or acknowledge except to say that we wish everybody health and safety and look after each other. But let's talk about some music. Yeah, let's talk about some music, and, and I, I will share that sentiment. Now is not the time to uh, say black or white. Now is the time to just all come together, and let's let's just figure this out, and we can go back to bitching and moaning, you know, afterwards. We we can discuss, you know, whether Kiss is valid afterwards. And, well, I mean, they are very valid, but we can discuss it after. Right, Alan? They're, they're exceptionally valid. If you say so. <laughs> Uh, never ceases to amaze me uh but uh let us let us talk great white you know you you come on all the time and you co-host and you you give your insight and foresight into you know whoever the guest is that week whether it's uh, somebody from the mc5 or 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 axel or whoever we're, we're talking about of course i've never interviewed axel but still uh, but this time, you have a, a new release of sorts. The band Great White, back in 1995, released this great live album called Stage. Uh, and uh, now it has been remastered and resequenced because uh, there were a couple of Japanese bonus tracks that were sort of tacked on at the end. Uh, but now they've been reintegrated into the actual uh, running track order. So, 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 talk to me about stage and why, at this stage of the game, did you want to uh, re-release this and and how, the importance of re-releasing this? It did get a, a a release back in '95, I think it was, um, under um, awkward circumstances and. The, we, I, I put these masters out on Zoo, um, who folded, um, and the material went away, apart from a brief moment when Sony misappropriated some of them 
and put them out under their extended version um the moniker yeah yeah they did that in 2000 for 2004 yeah, and you know that was something I discovered when I found a copy of it in a truck stop along the I-10 one night going into LA, and it was like, what the hell? And uh, had to pay for a lawyer to go and make them cease and desist and um, admit that they had done something wrong. And it was something that I was sitting on for a while because. Um, I thought that maybe one day I might start a, 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 li- a little label um, for talent that I believed in and maybe put this out on that. Um, but it got to a point where that didn't seem to be a sensible or viable thing to spend my time doing. And it's, I just couldn't see sitting on it any any longer. Um, and it kind of amuses me because <laughs> this may be the last quality live record of an 80s band um, because it's been sitting on a shelf so long. Um, and in terms of, there was a period of my life where I used to think that if you really want to know how a band is, listen to a live record. Um, and if you, this applies here, if you really want to know what great life were like live, how tight they were, how good they were live, then this is evidenced on these recordings, which were, um, I think, without doubt, I can say, were recorded at the prime of the band. And another little thought to keep in mind is that there are no studio overdubs on the, on the live, live tapes. Um, what you hear is what was played. And to me, it's the best of the band, uh, probably the best of their moment, best of their moments. Um, and they really, really could bring it live back in the day. They, they really could, absolutely. absolutely. So, so let me ask you this then. Um, you say there's no overdubs, but of course, you know, songs had been taken out on the original release, you know, Love is a Lie, Gone with the Wind, they've been put back in. Is it just a question of taking the tapes as they were and putting them out as they were? Or is there some in this resequencing and stuff, you know, you play with the crowd swell and, and all, you know, you know, there's got to be a the, little the, bit of the, studio magic. No, the... Uh... The sequencing on stage one and stage two is actually as it was originally released in Japan. And the Japanese at some point went to a single disc um, and, and messed around with the sequencing. But this is the original sequencing okay. that, I, that I did. And it, so- it, reflects, it, it reflects the performances. Um, so you're, you're basically going through the gig. And um, the only the only magic um, post recording, um, the only sprinkle dust is, and I, and I'll start by saying I've never been a huge fan of remastering, because usually if you have a mix, you master it a certain way. And we used to work with a guy called George Marino. And if you don't know who he is, look him up because he was the master of masters. So I've never been a big fan of remastering, but 
um, somebody I'd, I'd done some recording with um, took it upon themselves to do a remastering without telling me because they knew what I would say. And I have to say, I like what they did. Um, it just, there's just a little more air in the mix. There's just a little more punch in the mix. Uh, but the tones are not compromised. The vocal tone's not compromised. The guitar tone's not compromised. It's actually a worthwhile remastering. So I'm really happy with it. Yeah, and that was, uh, that was done by Chris Catero. Now, uh, just quickly for fans out there they, who always say to people, well, you should put out a remastered version of whatever album. Um, there's a big difference between a remastered version and a remixed version, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if it's a remix... That means you're going back to the basic tracks and you're building a whole new mix. Um, that's entirely something else. Um, mastering is accentuation of certain frequencies in the mixes um, to compensate or adjust for deficiencies that may have been within the mix. For example, um, if you're in a mastering lab, somebody might come in with a mix that's a little too bottom heavy so they roll a little bit off the bottom and that cleans out the mix and takes a mask off the vocals. Um, in the, you know, there's, uh, there was a period of time when I used to listen to something and say, that's a cocaine mix, you know, because it was all high endy and in mastering, you know, somebody was trying to get some mid range and bottom end into it. Um, but, uh, mastering treats the entire mix. And he, it's, it's a very subtle art form, and George Marino was absolutely the very best at it. At that time? He used to work in a, to work in a place called Sterling Sound in New York, yep. and it was, um, it was difficult, difficult to get his time. And I used to feel like a kid going in and getting my homework graded when I took him, you know, my, my half-inch master's. You know, it's like, well, what are you going to make of this, George? Am I going to get a passing grade or not? You know, <laughs> he was that good. He was the one person who intimidated me. I can as imagine. Far as sound went. So l let me ask you a few things about the band at this time. One of the shows was recorded in 93. The other one was recorded in 94. You had a bass player named uh, Teddy Cook, who, from what I can tell, hasn't done anything in music since then. So... Uh, and also, the, these two sets are both seven songs each. So, were they headlining sets at the House of Blues and at the other at the, the Anaheim show? And it was just you know forty five yes. minutes. Okay, so yep. so you're not opening for Judas Priest or Metallica. There's there's no no, no these were had okay these were had headline shows. Okay, now now was there a reason why they were so short in in terms of seven songs or? Are they seven songs out of 14, but this is the best seven we've got? Uh, I can't remember exactly what was played those nights, but at the time, these were the songs that I wanted to put into, um, Circulation. Put into a release. Okay. Yeah, and, and, you know, some consideration is given to, you know, the playing time and, you know, how long something is. But... These these made the best sense to me in the, in that moment back in the mid nineties. Okay, so now now let let's talk about the band because as we know, 
early 90s, uh, rock bands of the ilk started uh, disappearing or becoming less proficient in, in terms of, of how many releases they were putting out. What was the general vibe in the Great White Camp? Because they have these these two great concerts. The band sounds great on stage. Uh, they're playing great on stage. When they walk off stage, is it fisticuffs or is it high fives? Uh, after these particular particular gigs, these two gigs, well, no, high but mo- because but mostly just in that gigs. era. No, but mostly in that era was, was the band getting along in ninety four, ninety three, ninety four. Um, yeah, the band was getting along. Um, ninety five was a was a difficult year, and uh, it ended with this parting ways. Um, and obviously, the landscape had completely changed at that point. And if you were associated with the 80s, you were considered to be a leprous. And it was a period prior to the reemergence of people appreciating um, the good bands of the 80s. I mean, you know, it wasn't just, from my perception, it wasn't just Seattle that that killed it off. Um, I think there was an excessive amount of um, substandard formula applied. Uh, there were bands that um, I think took the intelligence and the cool out of rock and roll. And I think there are one or two people who might agree with me with this. It was like, I, th- I think people got sick of uh, um, pretty pop ballads, which were, you know, an awful oh, lot of bands oh, hallelujah. Just fell the, into. By the way, please, let, let me let me chime in for a second. I have said this. Go, go, for, go. I've had these debates on Twitter where people say Nirvana killed hair metal and heavy rock. Whatever. <laughs> and I go, no, heavy rock killed heavy rock because they started putting out these ballads. You look at 83, 84, 85, it's shout at the devil, it's looks that kill, it's holy diver it's it's you know it's it's even bon jovi runaway and you know it's their their rock songs and and photograph and and then you get to 89 90 and it's fucking heaven and it's it's every rose has its thorn and it's like will you fucking stop it it was it was ballad you know rock fans wanted to rock and and i think the best example and i and excuse me aerosmith fans and i'm one of them but when i got done with mirrors and they have a song on there called my fist your face i was like yeah my fist your face motherfucker and then i got over to you know a a permanent vacation and dude looks like a lady and those are very clean rock songs you're like yeah but then you get to get a grip and it's amazing and crazy and and it's just like oh could you stop it was unlistenable and nirvana killed nothing these rock bands killed themselves because you look at the top 10 on Billboard and every one of them was a fucking ballad and you're just like, enough already. I just want to rock. I want to rock. You can't rock to a fucking yeah, ballad. Cobain was a, a, a really interesting... Oh, he was a talentless and, fuck. No, I'm going to disagree with you. I think he was a really interesting singer-songwriter. Um, <sighs> but I will say that I think Nirvana is actually overrated. Oh, um, completely they're good. overrated. Definitely, they're good. Right, they're go. not that good. The two and most overrated bands ever: Nirvana and the Sex Pistols. Uh, we could talk about the Sex Pistols for a little bit, but um, 
you know, the, the, the other thing before we move, we move away, while we're using this terminology, the other thing that comes to mind, especially looking over the, this old stage material, is that it's also a very clear indication that Great White were, quote unquote, not a fucking hairband. They were, if, if you were going to categorize them, they were closer to an early 70s British blues rock band than anything else. I, you know, I agree with hair that. bands. To, to me, hair bands. I, I see Warrant. I see Poison. You know, White Lion, and you know, on on and on and on. Those, the, you know, all all bands. terrific bands. Oh well, here let me ask you this. Just yesterday on Sirius XM, uh, one of the hosts said that David Lee Roth was the best frontman of a hair band, and I was like. What are you talking about? David Lee Roth was not a front man for a hair band. David Lee Roth was never for a hair band. And then, you know, I, I went to Twitter and I said that and a couple of people were like, well, yeah, but he was a precursor to hair bands. It's like, well, okay, Brett Michaels' ballad was a precursor to grunge. Does that make him the great grunge front man? No. Well, <laughs> what, yeah, what are you well, talking I mean, about? You know, lumping a precursor in, does that make... Uh, Ray and Dave Davies, a hair band in the Kinks. No, it doesn't. Yeah, it yeah. just m makes them, you know, people who wrote amazing punchy songs with an incredible distorted guitar sound. All right. On you know major and and using major fifths. Right, so let me ask you this: Alan Niven, former manager of Guns N' Roses, former manager of Great White, two bands that are not hair bands. Was David Lee Roth part of the hair metal scene? Yes or no? No. Thank you very much. That's all we need to know. No, my, absolutely the, not. Jury, I rest my case. You can go. The jury can go. No, of course not. It, it, it is such an incredibly silly proposition. And I was told, yeah, but Hair Nation on Sirius XM plays David Lee Roth. I go, yeah, uh-huh. I mean, you know. It, they it, also it's, play it's, Giant it's, it's and King's X. So? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's as fatuous as saying that Guns N' Roses are a hair band just because... Um, Axel had that ridiculous hair in uh, in the jungle video. All right, I, I'm going to um, ask you about that. You know, let, let me ask you. I'm going to. That, I'm, I'm that was a, a, a momentary aberration. All right, I'm cutting in. How, how difficult was that for you to make that video? Because obviously there's a there's a team meeting somewhere, and they say, "Listen, we want to get on MTV. We want to get on Headbangers Ball. Everybody looks like this. Their hair looks like that." they must have come to you at some point and said, all right, Alan, you got to get Axel to get his hair up. And was that a, was that a bit of a cluster? No, 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 absolutely not. Uh, there was no meeting about how the band were going to look because the band were going to look as the band usually looked. Um, what I did enjoy was that every time that Axel put his hair up, Duff would come into the room and go, nice hair, Axel with dripping with sarcasm and eventually that permeated through and Axel took a look around and looked at the other people who were putting their hair up and went, yeah, I'm done with that. Good. Because it, it is the, you know, looking, looking at it, especially from a 2020 perspective and you look at what Guns N' Roses did over the years, that is the most, well, okay. No, the corn rolls or a corn, what do they call the corn rows, corn rows or whatever. Uh, Cornrows from from the early two thousands was probably his the abomination of hair looks for him, but but that welcome to the jungle video is just like 
very cringeworthy. You just go, oh, ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> Qu'est-ce que c'est? Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes and no. But, you know, when I, when I'm, even if I go back and look at that video now, if I were to do that, my focus wouldn't be on his quaff. My focus would be on his, on his voice and maybe a little bit on his moves. You know, what kind of dynamics? Is he a kinetic person? Has he got an energy? And what does that voice sound like? And most importantly of all is what is the motherfucker saying? Because that song, to me, had a significance above the superficial. It, there was a, a tinge of the political in it. There was a tinge of the social in it. And that turned me on. I know. In fact, I, I could I could recut that song today and say, Welcome to the Jungle, something-something uh, toilet paper. <laughs> I mean, it's... It's gotten, it's gotten <laughs> no, crazy. No, we're going to stay away from. We're, we're going to stay away from that. Away from all, that. all right. Well, well, we're going to stay away from all that. We are going to get into controversy. Let, let me know. I'll get back to stage. Stage is a great well, album. Let's, let's just cl- let's, okay. let's just quickly close off on stage. Okay. And what I would like to say is that if you had any enjoyment as a band in the past, you will love this record to the point where if the ship was sinking. And I could only grab one great white record to take with me. It might well be stage. It would be a toss up between Psycho City and stage, but I think it would be stage. Okay. See because it. that's them at their best. And, and by the way, that's I, have them it, at their best. I have it right in front of me. It's a nice uh, paper gatefold for fans that are old enough to remember what gatefolds are. So I would definitely... Uh, recommend picking that up. It might be a little complicated right now with Amazon and stuff. Uh, I don't think they're selling out CDs right now, but in June, when we're hopefully they're not back taking on, in they're not taking in new releases. They are, and still, they're selling through the stock that they have. So that you you may be able to get it. And you know, Cleopatra put this out, out, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if you could contact Cleopatra and find out where to get it. Well, yeah, in fact, uh, Cleopatra has their site. But you, you mentioned if the ship was sinking, you would grab this or or Psycho. Um, former bandmate Mark Kendall, one album that he definitely would not be reaching for is Hooked uh, because he recently made some comments that Hooked was rushed and that they stepped up their game on Psycho City, but yada, yada, yada. But this one, well, Hooked, God, was... so Yeah, God bless Mark. As a guitar player, he is always consistent to playing with feel. Um, as a guitar player, he's actually a better pool player than a guitar player. He's really good at pool. Um, and, and I'll give you a for instance. We might be in New York, and I'd call him up, and I'd go, hey, you want to go down to 46th Street and look at some guitar stores? And he'd go, no, Niv, I'm going to go and play pool. So I'd go down to the uh, guitar stores and look for great used instruments and buy one or two. Um, The little fact is that everything that Kendall played on Once Bitten through to Sail Away, he used my guitars. He didn't use his stage guitars. so that tells you, you know, just a little illustration of, of, of who Mark is. Because um, for me, in certain respects, 
he is an incredible pool player who's actually a really, really good guitar player as well. Um, and it's that way around. And God bless him. You know, I've heard him in a couple of interviews and the dear boy is not perfect with his memory. Um, he, he, his sense of timing is off. His memory is inaccurate. Um, there are, there's times I've been listening to something he's, he, he's done an interview and I've gone, okay, that didn't happen then. It happened then. And this, happened then and that you know he, he doesn't get it right he's not a great right, historian right, I, I got you wound up let me wind you up just a little bit more let me read you this quote he says in my opinion we didn't quite have what we needed on that one that one being hooked i think we rushed through it i think we should have done something different with the production i don't know what the other guys think but there's a lot of afterthoughts on my end i think we fell a little short alan nevin did you fall a little short on great white hooked well this is my perspective and we all have our own perspectives and our perspectives may be formed of this context or that context or that perception or this perception and you know maybe looking back he's looking at hooked not outselling twice shy and looking it through that prism. Whereas I look at it and I go, if anything was maybe a bit rushed and we were a bit short, it was twice shy. Um, that's probably one of the last records that I reach for and play. In fact, there was one day when my son actually sat me down and made me listen to the whole thing. And at the end of it, I looked at him and, you know, had a slight smile and he said, yes, it's better than you think it is. Um, but for me, I thought we were a little short on twice shy. Uh, we were under pressure to follow up once bitten really quickly. We were coming into the circumstance of, um, following up a record that was a hit uh, with the memory that we had lost a deal with EMI in 1984. And we were bound and determined to keep moving to make sure that we didn't lose another deal. And if any, if any of the records that we made were rushed, I would say it was twice shy. There's, there's a reason why I had that particular song in my back pocket and named one record once bitten and one record twice shy and used that song because I knew that we could probably get somewhere using that song and I wanted to have something in my back pocket you know for a, a, a little bit of a foundation on on a new recording the other thing about twice shy is that and again, I'm going to disagree with him about production. I think production on Twice Shy is just a hair slick for my taste these days. You know, and this is the person who's, you know, had the producer responsibility. But I look back at it and go, yeah, just a little too slick. And I think it all comes from the consciousness of really being conscious of making sure that you, you're doing the very, very best you think you should be doing because you're following up a hit and there's always that insecurity of will people care about the next record and they cared about it a bit too much i thought now when it comes to hooked we did not rush into it because of the way i looked at twice shy we spent a little more time 
making sure that we had a record that I felt rocked a little harder. And if there's anything about the production that I have a question mark about, it's maybe it was just a little on the um, raw side rather than the polished side. Um, if, if I could go back in time, I might just put just a little more grit into the guitar tones. Um, but I was looking for something that had um, was a very definite statement of, no, we're not getting slick. We're not going to turn into um, a slick 70s bon band. Jovi. We're not going to become sticks. We're not going to become Bon Jovi. We're not going to become sticks. We're not going to become anything like that. As, as I recall it, um, Hooked was what it was opened with, call it rock and roll. It was the original Queen of Sheba, cold hearted, loving, can't shake it. I mean, that's a pretty rocking opening for, for a record. Um, Heartbreaker on there, I think, is a, a slow burn that still sounds good to me today. Congo Square, I'll put it in the words of, uh, there used to be a, a, a DJ on KLOS called Bob Coburn, who used to do the afternoon. And I was driving down the free one, freeway one day listening to him. And he pre-sold a track by saying, if this, if this had been the first track released off this record, the record would have been a monster. And then he played Congo Square, um, Desert Moon, and I think Kendall made some comments about, you know, in, in different soft songs. Um, Love and Kind, I think, is, it's got a very clear statement. And I think it's, it's got a clear statement without being emasculated. And I'm going to say that, uh, you know, I've never been that comfortable with Save Your Love because to me, it's slightly emasculated in its position. Um, Whereas Loving Kind addresses the same circumstance from a slightly more testosterone-fueled point of view. Um, and then there's Afterglow, which is fucking beautiful. I mean, you know, what a, what a great thing to have in your mind after you've been making out. Yep. And, and a song like Afterglow to encapsulate that. I, I'm going to finish this with, with two questions for you. You're going to love these. Uh would Twice Shy have been a more successful album if Wasted Rock Ranger had been the lead-off single, yes or no? No, it was something <laughs> silly to put on, put on a B-side. All right. Um, and uh, I, ironic, Ironically, you know, that's, that single ended up selling a million copies. You know, it was just for fun. It was something silly. Um, if, if you look at the Great White discography, you can see that... Uh, we didn't conform to the absolute of here's an album, here's an album, here's an album. I mean, we, we put, put out some EPs in different territories and put some tracks in places that were not meant for a record, but they were fun. So and, let's do it. And let know? me ask you this. If Hooked was re-recorded with current great white singer Mitch Malloy, would... Mark Kendall like it more. Alan Niven, yes or no? Mark Kendall would probably like it. I would say it would be an abomination. Um, you know, it's like having the singer from Pablo Cruz or... Uh, I mean, you know, this is an attitude in the, in the writing and the, the approach 
that was supposed to be supportive of Jack Russell. And Jack Russell has a particular kind of voice and an, and an amazing voice and a certain attitude. Um, and Mitch Malloy falls short on both those as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, it's, it's, he'd be good in a, you know, a slick 70s style smooth rock band. Um, he'd be good at, you know, a Vegas tribute band. Fronting Great White, I just can't deal with it. I, it absolutely annoys me. Um, and I think it's really sad that they didn't bother to take a look at one or two other people who were suggested to them who are real gritty frontmen who could live in the material. But, you know, I'm sorry, Les Malloy does not do it for me in any way, shape, or form. Well, well, listen, first of all, I like Mitch Malloy. He's a nice guy, and he's got a fantastic name. <laughs> Mitch is a great I'm not, name. I'm not talking about personality or character. I'm talking about style and vocal tone. Well, you know what? It, it is very hard uh, to replace somebody. He's probably a lovely guy. You know, it's probably probably a lovely guy. You probably get through half a pint with him, but half a pint of beer with him. But you know, for fronting Great White and fronting the material that I put together for Jack, nah, it it doesn't. That that dog don't hunt, baby. That dog definitely don't hunt. Well, you know, listen, uh, replacing a vocal like uh, Jack Russell or even Stephen Piercy. You can't get a clean vocalist to replace those guys because they they've got a dirty, snide, gritty. It, it's just yeah, it's just hard to replace. I mean, you know, you could probably get Mitch to front Def Leppard, and it, you could probably get close to giving yep. you the Def Leppard vibe because it's a very clean, you know, sanitized vocal. And I know fans are hating me for saying that right now, but. But if you're going to replace Stephen Piercy, for example, it's got to be dirty. It's got to be. There's got to be a nasal snarl, and, and Jack too. Yeah, Jack. Jack is. Jack's Jack. You 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 know, <laughs> you know. It, the, maybe the terminology. There's got to be a smidgen of Jack the Lad in it. Because, you know, that's how it came across, because that's who he was. He really was Jack the Lad. I mean, all the things he got up to in his life, um, you know, he was that kind of a personality. And Mitch is not. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, Jack was coming to uh, Canada at the end of April. Uh, those dates will, will unfortunately be canceled, I would assume. They haven't been announced as canceled, but, I'm, you know. Let's put a one-to-one dollar <laughs> bet that it's going to be uh, it's going to be canceled. Anyway, on that, uh, Monsieur Alain, toujours un plaisir, always a pleasure. Merci. You're very welcome, and be safe. Keep your hands clean. And as much as we're going to talk about this, let me recommend that everybody keeps wipes in the car. The car is your first line of defense. You forget what you touch. The minute you get in the car, do your hands. Do your steering wheel. Live long. Prosper. Thank you, sir. Bonsoir. Thank you. Bonsoir. Here's Paul Stanley to tell you why he doesn't want to shake your hand. Some people might have a little rock and roll pneumonia. Not even cold gin will kill those germs. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon.